Welcome back to the book podcast where we are reading Marcel Proust's In Search of Lost Time. And also, Happy New Year. Hope you're having a great start on 2020 and the, the best wishes for the new year to come. And we're going to keep reading now um, from, from the beginning of Swan's Way. And uh, we've been through the opening pages where the person is is uh, kind of blending into this, this uh, atmosphere of of imagination and memories and dreaming and being partly awake and then having fragments of his childhood becoming more vivid and uh, kind of appear before him. And then also that we are uh, gradually being presented the perception he had as a little boy. So we're kind of seeing the world also in part through the eyes of a little boy. And then we're going to read a couple of more paragraphs. When these walks of my grandmother's took place after dinner, there was one thing which never failed to bring her back to the house. That was if, at one of those points when the revolutions of her course brought her moth-like in sight of the lamp in the little parlor where the liquors were set out on the card table, my great-aunt called out to her, Bathilde, come in and stop your husband from drinking brandy. For, simply to tease her, she had brought so foreign a type of mind into my father's family that everyone made a joke of it. My great-aunt used to make my grandfather, who was forbidden liquors, take just a few drops. My poor grandmother would come in and beg and implore her husband not to taste the brandy, and he would become annoyed and swallow his few drops all the same. And she would go out again, sad and discouraged, but still smiling, for she was so humble and so sweet that her gentleness towards others and her continual subordination of herself and of her own troubles appeared on her face blended in a smile which, unlike those seen on the majority of human faces, had no trace in it of irony, save for herself, while for all of us kisses seemed to spring from her eyes which could not look upon those she loved without yearning to bestow upon them passionate caresses. The torments inflicted on her by my great-aunt, the sight of my grandmother's vain entreaties, of her in her weakness conquered before she began, but still making the futile endeavor to wean my grandfather from his liquor glass, all these were things of the sort to which, in later years, one can grow so well accustomed as to smile at them, to take the tormentor's side with a happy determination which deludes one into the belief that it is not really tormenting. But in those days, they filled me with such horror that I longed to strike my great-aunt. And yet, as soon as I heard her, Bathilde, come in and stop your husband from drinking brandy, in my cowardice, I became at once a man and did what all we grown men do when face to face with suffering and injustice. I preferred not to see them. I ran up to the top of the house to cry by myself in a little room beside the schoolroom and beneath the roof, which smelt of orris root and was scented also by a wild currant bush, which had climbed up between the stones of the outer wall thrust a flowering branch in through the half-opened window. 
intended for a more special and a baser use, this room from which in the daytime I could see as far as the keep of Roussavelle Lapin was for a long time my place of refuge, doubtless because it was the only room whose door I was allowed to lock. Whenever my occupation was such as required as inviolable solitude, reading or dreaming, secret tears or paroxysm of desire. Alas, I little knew that my own lack of willpower, my delicate health, and the consequent uncertainty as to my future weighed far more heavily on my grandmother's mind than any little breach of the rules by her husband. During those endless perambulations, afternoon and evening, in which we used to see passing up and down, obliquely raised towards the heavens, her handsome face with its brown and wrinkled cheeks, which with age had acquired almost the purple hue of tilled fields in autumn, covered, if she were walking abroad, by a half-lifted veil, while upon them either the cold or some sad reflection invariably left the drying traces of an involuntary tear. My sole consolation when I went upstairs for the night was that Mama would come in and kiss me after I was in bed. But this good night lasted for so short a time. She went down again so soon that the moment in which I heard her climb the stairs and then caught the sound of her garden dress of blue muslin from which hung little tassels of plaited straw rustling along the double-doored corridor was for me a moment of the keenest sorrow. So much did I love that good night that I reached a state of hoping that it would come as late as possible, so as to prolong the time of respite, during which Mama would not yet have appeared. Sometimes when, after kissing me, she opened the door to go, I longed to call her back to say to her, kiss me just once again. But I knew that then she would at once look displeased for the concession which she made to my wretchedness and agitation in coming up to me with this kiss of peace always annoyed my father, who thought such ceremonies absurd. And she would have liked to dry, try to induce me to outgrow the need, the custom of having her there at all, which was a very different thing from letting the custom grow up of my asking her for an additional kiss when she was already crossing the threshold. And to see her look displeased destroyed all the sense of tranquility she had brought me a moment before, when she bent her loving face down over my bed and held it out to me like a host, for an act of communion in which my lips might drink deeply the sense of her real presence, and with it the power to sleep. But those evenings on which Mama stayed so short a time in my room were sweet indeed compared to those on which we had guests to dinner, and therefore she did not come at all. Our guests were practically limited to Monsieur Swan, who, apart from a few passing strangers, was almost the only person who ever came to the house at Compré, sometimes to a neighborly dinner, but less frequently since his unfortunate marriage 
as my family did not care to receive his wife. And sometimes after dinner, uninvited. On those evenings when, as we sat in front of the house beneath the big chestnut tree and round the iron table, we heard from the far end of the garden, not the large and noisy rattle which heralded and deafened as he approached with his ferruginous, interminable, frozen sound any member of the household would have put it, put it out of action by coming in without ringing, but the doubled peal, timid, oval, jilted, of the visitor's bell. Everyone would at once exclaim, a visitor, who in the world can it be? But they knew quite well that it could only be Monsieur Swann. My great aunt, speaking in a loud voice to set an example, in a tone which he endeavored to make sound natural, would tell the others not to whisper, that nothing could be more unpleasant for a stranger coming in, who would be led to think that people were saying things about him, which he was not meant to hear. And then my grandmother would be sent out as a scout, always happy to find an excuse for an additional turn in the garden, which she would utilize to remove surreptitiously. As she passed the stakes of a rose tree or two, so as to make the roses look a little more natural, as a mother might run her hand through her boy's hair after the barber had smoothed it down to make it stick out properly round his head. Okay, so we're going to stop here. Um, so at this point, it's very early in the first book, but it's, we already are getting into this elaborate um, presentation and, and, and exploration and description of childhood scenes and childhood experiences for a little boy, like Marcel as a little boy. And you're also getting very detailed presentation of the different characters. So, and now Monsieur Swan is kind of being presented as, as someone who is about to come. So it's kind of, uh, so there's an element of expectation that he's not described as a, a, a like a person in the room suddenly, but it, like it's uh, it's someone who is about to come that they they now are talking about, or we, we get the bigger context of the relationship to this person. So uh, there's also something about the feeling here with these long detailed descriptions, and then you get those those uh, tiny passages of of um, kind of metaphors or, or visual beauty, like when uh, he talks here about. Uh, the half-lifted veil upon them, uh, like the the uh, drying traces of an involuntary tear, is one of those, and then also with um, is, uh, the purple hue of tilled fields in autumn, kind of her her <laughs> her wrinkled cheeks it was almost like the purple hue of tilled fields in the autumn, so very kind of. Uh, uh, recognizable Proust ways of describing things. Okay, so we're going to wrap it up here. And um, as always, if you made it this far, thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed some of this and hope you also will enjoy the journey <laughs> through the Swan's Way with us here. And um, also then, especially today, Happy New Year again and have a great evening. <laughs>